Guten Morgen. It's a pleasure to see all of you here today and to open up the Word of God for us this morning. Today we will be continuing a series in the book of Colossians, which I began to preach through almost a year ago and have continued in as often as the opportunity has arisen. We have together examined the Colossian church, a small group of believers surrounded by immoral uh, and superstitious pagans and by the legalism and rigid traditionalism of the Jews. We saw how Paul had received a report about the Colossian church from Epaphras about how they were abounding in love for one another and with faith, but were also threatened by false teachers that were attempting to spread a false gospel in their midst. We have seen how Paul establishes his authority as an apostle, how he thanks God for the Colossians, and how he shows how he is praying for them. We have seen Paul wax poetic in a beautiful hymn to the supremacy of Christ, and we have seen him speak powerfully of his ministry, his work, and his desire to serve the Colossians themselves. Today, we will be studying together verses 6 through 10 of the second chapter of Colossians, a passage that many commentators consider to be the very hinge of this letter, where Paul transitions his focus from laying a foundation of introduction and instruction to warning against and assaulting the teachings of the false teachers that were attempting to waylay them. Let's read the word of God together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, that in it we might receive um, your wisdom, your truth, your gospel. We thank you for your apostle Paul and that you have caused his letters to different churches to be preserved, that we might study them. And Lord, we pray that as we study this portion of Colossians, that we would remember what we have been taught, that we would become conscious of and wary of the false teaching that might be attempting to work its way into our hearts and that we would be reminded 
of the fullness that we have in Christ. Would you pray these things in the Son, in the name of your Son, Jesus? Amen. Our sermon today will consist of three different points. Firstly, an exhortation to faithfulness in verses 6 and 7. Secondly, a warning against false teaching in verse 8. And then finally, the fullness of Christ in verses 9 and 10. Again, for our note takers, that's an exhortation to faithfulness, a warning against false teaching, and the fullness of Christ. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 again together. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This therefore that Paul begins with connects it to and comes immediately after an extended passage where he speaks about his ministry and his message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the one who is the mystery of God, the one who is the hope of glory. The Colossians had received this message. They had heard the gospel preached, presumably by someone who had heard Paul preach it, and they had believed and put their faith in Christ. This language of receiving that Paul uses is important. The Colossians had not come up with this gospel for themselves. They had not gone out looking to acquire it. They had not heard it and accepted it with a purely logical and calculated mindset, deciding with their own free will that it is superior system of values and propositions to their previous beliefs. No, they had received it. Received it as we might receive a gift on Christmas Day. They were predestined to faith before the foundation of the world. Their hearts were softened and their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit. And the word of God was preached to them one by one by those who had received it before. While the journey to faith in Christ may have seemed for some of the Colossians, and perhaps indeed for some of us, to be self-driven and organic, in reality it was and is the sovereign outworking of the immense and beautiful providence of God, a providence that is utterly beyond our ability to comprehend, but is utterly perfect in all of its parts. Christ Jesus was the Lord of the Colossians. Indeed, he had made himself their Lord. And in light of this, Paul calls the Colossians to continue in three different things which they had been taught. Firstly, to walk in Christ. Secondly, to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. And thirdly, to abound in thanksgiving. The language of walking was already used by Paul near the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verses 10, 
where he says that he is praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. The Colossians had received the gospel. Christ was their Lord. And now they needed to live in such a way that accorded with that. They could not claim ignorance of what this meant, for Paul reminds them here that they've already been taught what it means. They knew that it meant to love God and their neighbor, to walk in the steps of Christ, to avoid, as Psalm 1 warns, walking in the way of the wicked, but instead to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord glorifying God in the way that they lived their lives. Next, Paul says that Colossians should be rooted, built up, and established in faith in Christ. And it's no coincidence that Paul lists this growth and strengthening of faith after exhorting the Colossians to walk in Christ. For this growth and strength of our faith depends in a very real way upon the extent to which we walk in him, following his example. This metaphor of a tree extending its roots deep into the soil and growing ever upwards, or that of a house built on strong foundations, is a powerful one. We can think of the parable that Jesus told of the two men, one who built his house upon a rock, one who built his house upon the sand. When this root, this foundation is lacking, then one is left vulnerable to the storms of this life, whether that be pain or suffering or loss or, as was the case for the Colossians, the deceptions of false teachers. But when a foundation a foundation of partaking of the means of grace, of the word preached, the Lord's Supper taken, the remembrance of our baptism, the regular practice of prayer and of meditation upon the word of God, which he has provided for us in the scriptures. When a foundation like this is laid, then all the storms of this world cannot overcome us. For our heart and our mind, our very treasure is not laid up here in this life, but rather in heaven. Finally, Paul exhorts the Colossians to abound in thanksgiving. Commentators point out that the phrasing that Paul uses here does not just mean a a passive feeling of thankfulness or an internal counting of our blessings, though that, of course, is a part of it. But it also means an active, outward proclamation of thanksgiving, both in prayer to God, but also in praise of God to those around us. Something to be noticed here is that Paul does not make this command conditional on certain earthly blessings, although those surely also merit thanks. Instead, this is a universal command, 
for every person in every circumstance. For the believer, for the one who has, purely by the grace of God, been saved from the completely deserted, eternal torment of hell, and instead destined for the completely undeserved, eternal bliss of heaven, there is always reason to give thanks to God. Every suffering that we experience on this earth pales in comparison to the suffering from which we have been saved. And every joy that we receive on this earth pales in comparison to the joy, to the ultimate gift that we have received and to which we are destined. And with such a thing to be thankful for, how can we contain this within ourselves? If Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, came to you tomorrow in one would you just take it without acknowledging it outwardly? Maybe just feeling an internal sense of being grateful? Would you keep it, or at least the source of it, hidden from your friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, and pretend that you somehow earned it for yourself? I would hope not. How much more, then, ought we to overflow with thanks to our God, the one who has given us a gift that is utterly beyond having any kind of value put upon it. How could we not praise his love, his mercy, and his grace to everyone who would give us a hearing? That brings us to our second point, a warning against false teaching. Let's look at verse 8 again together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here Paul shifts from exhorting the Colossians in what they should be doing, instead to warning them against what they should avoid, that is being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The word Paul uses here for being taken captive is a vivid one. It doesn't merely imply being imprisoned, being handcuffed to a wall somewhere, losing our freedom, but instead it implies a literal kidnapping. You can envision being thrown over the shoulder of someone and being literally carried off into a different land, into slavery. Something that would have been an idea familiar to the Colossians and was unfortunately a very common occurrence in the ancient world whenever a village or a city was unfortunate enough to be conquered by its enemies. Paul uses a similar metaphor in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
the horrors of this sort of captivity, this slavery, and therefore the utter absurdity of willingly submitting to it is what Paul is trying to impress upon the hearts of the Colossians here. They had received the gift of salvation. They had been liberated from their bondage to sin. They were finally free to live a life that glorifies their God. How could they then possibly allow themselves to be tricked or seduced to return to their old beliefs and superstitions? Yet this is exactly the temptation with which the Colossians were confronted. There was a false teaching in Colossae, one which scholars generally agree had elements of Judaism, Gnosticism, and even angel worship. When Paul speaks here of philosophy, he is including different Jewish traditions alongside the philosophy of the classical world, which we would probably first think of when we hear the word. Paul does not mean here to denigrate all philosophy or all philosophers. The word philosophy merely means lover of wisdom. And in fact, one can be a dedicated philosopher and still be a Christian, glorifying God through one's work. But when philosophy is used to supplant or to add on to Christ and the gospel, then it becomes a problem. And this is exactly what was happening. The false teachers in Colossae were spreading a philosophy, a group of teachings that inferred that Christ was not sufficient for salvation, that there were additional levels of knowledge or action that were required to be added on to his sacrifice if one wanted to be saved. This teaching had the surface appearance of wisdom, deceiving those who were not rooted or solid in their faith as wolves in sheep's clothing, most likely even using passages from the Old Testament out of their right context to justify their heresy. Paul here calls out the emptiness and the deceitfulness of these philosophies that were seeking to draw people away through the appearance of wisdom backed by empty promises. He specifically speaks against human tradition insofar as it is not formed and shaped by or ultimately submitted to the ultimate truth of the word of God. When Paul mentions here human traditions, he and the Colossians undoubtedly had in mind the traditions of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes with all of their carefully handed down and painfully detailed additions to the law of God. It was to the same strand of tradition that the false teachers were most likely appealing to. But it also applied to the traditions of the Greco-Roman culture, whose superstition and polytheism seemed to also have been part and parcel of the Colossian heresy. Every person has a worldview. I have a worldview. All of you have a worldview. All of us have grown up in and have been shaped by the particular culture by which we are surrounded and have according insights or blind spots. 
And it is when anti-biblical teachings are most in accord with these cultural traditions that they are the most dangerous. For they give the false impression that we are successfully reconciling our culture and our faith. How many Christians in churches in America and in Germany have fallen into this trap in the past? Or in other places, for that matter. Having an earnest and good-hearted desire to engage the culture around them and maintain their relevance in the face of shifting norms. They listen to the voice of those who call them away to a new interpretation of the fundamental teachings of Scripture. In the process, losing the faith given once and for all, and ultimately failing even to achieve that cultural, cultural relevance after which they had been striving. Paul also warns against the teachings that are, as the ESV translates it, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Commentators are divided on what exactly Paul means here. Some translate it in the same way as the ESV and see Paul as addressing the philosophical system of the false teachers who may have included complex spiritual hierarchies of angels and other spirits in their teachings. According to this interpretation, Paul is here making a point regarding the inferiority of these spirits to Christ and the foolishness and emptiness of seeking something in them rather than in Christ. Others translate it instead as according to the rudiments or the fundamentals of the world without any sort of direct reference to angels or demons or spirits. These commentators see this phrase as being used by Paul in conjunction with his warning against the traditions of men, with its meaning being the different ways, whether they be uh, rules, regulations, or rituals, such as sacrifices or circumcision, in which people attempted to be reconciled to God before the advent of Christ. While I think the second interpretation is more likely, it in no way invalidates the first interpretation, but instead contains it within. For what else was the worship of, the obsession with angels and demons and other spirits, than an attempt to come to God apart from the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. And this is the main point of verse 8. We have Jesus Christ, the God-man, as our Savior. The one who is supreme over all creation and who loves us more than we could ever imagine. In comparison to him, all the traditions and philosophies and religions of man utterly fail, utterly pale in comparison. How could we then allow ourselves to be taken captive by them, to abandon that which is priceless for that which is empty and rudimentary? No, brothers and sisters, let us instead here listen to the warning of Paul 
and reject this temptation. Let us be ever vigilant, continuing steadfast and unswayable in our pursuit of Christ, refusing to heed the call of those who would have us follow them into the swamp of heresy and superstition. That brings us to our third and final point, the fullness of Christ. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul here shifts once again to remind the Colossians of what they had received and why the false teachings of man so pale in comparison to the truth of what Christ is and what he is for us. What weightier thing could possibly be said about Christ, about Jesus of Nazareth, this man born in a stable, trained as a carpenter, crucified on the cross, is the man in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in. Christ is God. He was not merely a good rabbi, as some Jews may have been inclined to believe. He is not merely another type of created spiritual creature, as some of the Gentiles may have been inclined to assume. We can also look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is fully God. There is nothing in God or belonging to God that he lacks, for the very fullness of deity belongs to him. He is the Son belonging to the Godhead, the God who created us, who saved us, who sanctifies us, and who will glorify us. The miraculous thing is that the Son of God is united to humanity in Christ. Jesus is also fully man. Just as there is nothing of God that he lacks, there is nothing of humanity that is lacking in Christ. As a man, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling perfectly and entirely the law that we are utterly unable to keep. He suffered as we suffer. He hungered as we hunger. He thirsted as we thirst. And then he took our sins upon himself on a tree, suffering a horrible death paying the debt that we owed and freeing us once and for all from the otherwise inescapable clutch of slavery to sin. Only a man could justly fulfill what Adam had failed to do in the keeping of the law. Only a man could have justly been punished 
for the sins of his people. And only God could have withstood the unspeakable and overwhelming just wrath of God against sin and not be utterly destroyed. It is not a coincidence that Paul mentions this directly after talking about the false teaching Colossae that claimed that Christ was not sufficient. John Calvin illustrates in his commentary the connection perfectly when he says, Those, therefore, who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone do injury to God in two ways. For besides detracting from the glory of God by desiring something above his perfection, they are also ungrateful inasmuch as they seek elsewhere what they already have in Christ. Christ is the one that we need. Christ is the only one we need. No other person or spirit or system can do what Christ has done for us. For he is the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Yet Paul is still concerned to emphasize to the Colossians that God, that Christ, is not distant from them, having accomplished some sort of salvation in the past, but leaving believers to fend for themselves and to search for ways to add on to the finished work of Christ in a hostile world. He says that you, speaking to all of the Colossians, and by extension all believers, are filled in Christ. What does this mean? Are we also, by extension, filled with some kind of deity? Are we all little gods, as some prosperity preachers teach? Absolutely not. Yet we are, in a very real sense, united to Christ. We are united to Christ by faith. He is the head, and we are the body. He is the vine, and we are the branches. He is the living water, and we are the ones who drink it. The Lord's Supper that we celebrate here is meant to signify this truth to our senses and to minister it spiritually to our souls. In being united to Christ, we receive everything that we truly need. We receive forgiveness of our sins. We receive the merit of Christ for ourselves. We receive brothers and sisters spread throughout every corner of the world. We receive peace and comfort, love and rest. Though our bodies may be harmed or even destroyed until the resurrection, Our souls are still safely in the repose in the arms of our Savior. Finally, Paul adds another comforting thought when he says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. There are indeed other 
sentient beings in the world besides humans. They are invisible. They seem, by the testament of Scripture, to be very powerful. And many of them have a deep and malicious hatred for God and for all of his people and indeed all of humanity. Pagan cultures all throughout the world and throughout history have worshipped these demons out of a reasonable sense of fear, out of a desire to placate or control them. Yet for the believer, fear should be out of the question. Christ is the head. Christ is the ruler. Christ is the master. Christ is the God of every single angel and demon. And he directs them in such a way regarding his church that, as William Hendrickson says in his commentary, apart from him, the good angels cannot help And because of him, the evil cannot harm. Let us ask ourselves, church, do we truly consider Christ to be sufficient? Do we truly see him as God over all? As the savior of our souls? As the ordainer of our lives? as the protector against evil and the provider of everything good. Let me encourage you, each of you, to ask of yourself, is Jesus Christ my Lord? Am I united to him? Or am I still seeking fullness where there is only emptiness, truth, where there is only deception and freedom where there is only slavery. For those who are in union with Christ, persevere. Do not allow yourself to be drawn aside out of the way by smooth words and shiny new ideas. Guard the freedom of your soul from slavery as jealously as you would guard that of your body. Hold on to the faith, to the doctrine which you have been taught, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you might finish the race, and that at the end, when you stand before the throne, you may hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are a good and gracious God. You have saved us who were utterly unworthy of saving. You are sanctifying us day by day and making us more like your son. And you have promised us that one day we might see you face to face and worship you forever. Lord, we pray that you would preserve us in this pilgrimage in life, that you would protect us against false teaching, or those who would call us out of the way of faith, that you would cause us all to persevere, to walk in Christ, to glorify you in our lives, that you might be glorified through the watching world.
We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.